I'm John Golia. And I'm Greg Fife. And we are the, the Flight Safety, Safety Detectives. Detectives. We're just two guys who have spent most of their career with the National Transportation Safety Board investigating aircraft disasters and aviation safety issues all over the world. Yep, and this podcast is where we talk about everything from accidents, airplane technology, to the big business of aviation. We live and breathe aviation. My co-host, John, has been in the aviation business for more than 60 years. He was the first and only airframe and power plant mechanic to get a presidential appointment to the National Transportation Safety Board. And Greg is a former air safety investigator and go-team captain for the NTSB. He's investigated everything that flies worldwide since he started his career 40 years ago. And on top of that, he is a living legend of aviation inductee. So between John and myself, we have over 100 years of aviation safety experience. It's time to buckle up because it's going to be wheels up. Let's get this show in the air. Well, John, another edition of Flight Safety Detectives. Unfortunately, uh, you and I are still social distancing all too far. We've talked about hopefully getting together one of these days soon, but it's been well over three months since uh, you and I have been together. But fortunately, we've been able to, to do our podcast and uh, and provide the audience with what we believe is some not only very good information, but current information. And of course, uh, with this podcast, uh, we have a special guest with us who I'll talk to and uh, we'll interview shortly. But one of the things that has recently happened at the time of this podcast was a major accident that occurred in Pakistan involving Pakistani International Airlines and an A320 Airbus that was attempting to land at an airport that is surrounded by uh, a number of uh, very poor communities. It's very highly or you know very densely populated. And so uh, we wanted to touch on that. So before we get into all of that, John, how you doing today? Hanging in there. Still in lockdown. Can't wait for this to be loosened up. You're going to be the only one in lockdown well after lockdown is, is at least taken off the board because, uh, you know, you do have a sordid history, my friend. So, Well, today's my day, Charlie Taylor, the nut first yeah. mechanic, Charlie Taylor Day. That's awesome. Just give us a little history with Charlie Taylor for those people that don't know who Charlie Taylor is, other than Charlie Taylor was a wide receiver for the Washington Redskins eons ago. Well, the original Charlie Taylor was <laughs> was a farmer in in the Midwest that went to work for the Wright brothers fixing bicycles. In fact, he, while they were down in the uh, in the Carolinas playing with their gliders, he actually uh, ran the bicycle shop, manufactured bicycles, repaired them, and generated the revenue that they used partially to uh, fund their operation on that flyer. But also, he was an unbelievably skilled person. Because he, he not only uh, built the flyer with them, and he built their engine from scratch because nobody else would build the engine. So he actually built an engine bigger than what the Wright brothers wanted because he thought that uh, they didn't have enough horsepower. They wanted eight horsepower, and he built a 12-horsepower engine. In those days, horsepower was just displacement. So he built a bigger engine than they wanted and produced more horsepower. And they barely got off the ground. So if he had done what they had said, they never would have flown on in 1903. And then what's the award that is in his name? Yeah, for a mechanic that goes 50 years without having any violations from the FAA, continuous service 
in aviation, they get an award. Just the pilot has this, the flight community has the same award 50 years. And I'm proud to say that you are a recipient of that award. I, I am. I am. I don't know how that happened because I know you have violated a lot of things. They must not have looked real deep into your background, pal. Quick. <laughs> have to be quick. Yeah. <laughs> Operating at night, stealth. Uh, well, that helped. I worked for about 30 years on midnight shift. And one thing about federal employees, they don't work midnights. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Well, uh, we are fortunate today to have uh, with us a guest. I am honored to call him a friend of both of ours. His father is very well known in the aviation circles. Brian is making a name for himself as well, although it may not always be a good name. But I'd like to introduce Brian Schiff. So hello, Brian. How are you today? Good, Greg. Glad to be here. Well, we're glad to have you. And I know that, uh, you know, with your background, uh, you've been flying, I think, if I remember right, you're pushing 40 years in the cockpit, starting from the time you started to fly, and you've been an airline pilot most of that time. You're probably pushing now 20,000, if not beyond 20,000 hours, which is typically a milestone for, for airline pilots these days. Yeah, when you put it that way, you make me feel old to even talk about numbers so large. I don't feel old enough to have any kind of credentials <laughs> like that. I've been flying for probably close to my 50 years. It's just that I could see over the glare shield for the last 39 of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I know that uh, you're also a designated pilot examiner and a Czech airman. And one of the things that I've always been proud of, and, and at least calling you not only a colleague, but a friend as well as your father, is that I've learned a lot from both of you. And we have the opportunity to occasionally work together, both in uh, litigation, because you and I both do expert witness work as well as your dad. But uh, the biggest thing is in aviation is I was fortunate enough to get voted on to the board of the National Association of Flight Instructors, partially in thanks to you. So I appreciate your support. And I think that uh, we're going to be able to do good things because you are a flight instructor. You do a lot of airline stories and, and discussions, but you are a very accomplished general aviation pilot. And one of the things that I've been impressed with was the video you put together on what we call the impossible turn. We've always been taught in aviation that, you know, in a small airplane, if you lose an engine right after takeoff below a certain altitude, you don't even think about turning back. You either use whatever runway is ahead of you or you just stay going straight and put the airplane down and do the best you can. But you put together a very good demonstration that with the right skills and the right level of knowledge about the airplane you're flying, that impossible turn isn't so impossible. Right. And I appreciate your saying that you've learned from me. I, Greg, you know, I've learned a lot from you as well. You've contributed so much. I've seen so much of what you've done and, and we all learn from one another. I think that's what really makes a lot of the camaraderie in aviation, especially among people who love to teach. And it warms my heart to think that somebody was able to get something from me, whether it be the joy of flight when I teach them to fly and I look over and I see them smiling or when I see that click in their brain when something finally gets understood or becomes understood. And, uh, you know, we all try to make it as safe as we can. And what you have done and contributed has been wonderful in the aspect of 
we all want to know what the other guy did wrong. And you have done so much to help us observe that, analyze it, figure out what the other guy did wrong, not to criticize him, but so that we can learn ourselves not to do the same thing. And as far as that impossible turn, you know, we've got everybody's instinct is to do it anyway. And, and so I just took the baton from my dad, who for over 40 years has been trying to teach people the, the right and wrong time to make that turn and when it's appropriate and when it's not appropriate and how to do it properly, because it's our instinct to go back to where we came from when things go wrong. And pilots are doing it anyway, no matter whether they're told to go straight ahead or, or whether they're told to turn around at a certain altitude, they're doing it anyway. And that's why we have to teach to do it properly. And I want to get more into that in the conversation with John. But one of the things in the opening that John and I talked about was this recent accident that occurred in Pakistan. And you're familiar with the Airbus. You're an airline pilot. You have a lot of experience. One of the, the issues amongst many that will be looked at, I've got some contacts over there who uh, told me that uh, there's a, a big infestation of birds in, in, in and around a lot of the airports in Pakistan because there are a lot of trash dump areas in close proximity to the airport. So, of course, when it was reported that uh, there was an issue with both engines, one of the immediate thoughts, of course, was bird ingestion similar to a Miracle on the Hudson type event where they ingested geese into the engine. One of the other things, of course, is that they had a mechanical problem of some sort with the landing gear and that the crew tried to do two or three approaches, do flybys, uh, shake the gear down, do the things that a pilot would normally try to do to, to get the gear to come down if it got hung up in one of the wheel wells. So, of course, the mechanical aspects. Another aspect will be whether or not they had sufficient fuel that may have led to a flame out of one or both engines. So there's a number of issues that investigators are going to be looking at. But one of the, the biggest concerns, and I think it, it applies worldwide, and John and I have had this discussion on previous podcasts, and that is because commercial aviation has really gone into suspension because of COVID-19. A lot of the airplanes that are now coming back into service have been sitting for a while and so, of course, a return to service were these airplanes, or at least was this airplane, in a condition for safe flight after possibly having sat for a month, two months, even maybe even three months. Right. Yeah. Now you touched on a lot of different things there. I am a captain on the Airbus right now, so I'm, I've been flying it for a little over a year. So I'm somewhat familiar with it. And from the way I understand it, what happened couldn't happen. They told us it's impossible. So it didn't happen. <laughs> yeah, I know. For the fear of speculating too early, I mean, you know, there's so many things that could have gone wrong. And you and I and the work that we've done together have learned about Occam's razor and combining the birds with the gear problem and the multiple go-arounds and the other things. It starts to get a little convoluted, so I'd hate to blame too much on that and get too far from the initial problem that happened. But I'm eager to learn more about it and hopefully from you, and maybe we can get to, get to some realistic conclusions without without doing too much speculating regarding bringing aircraft out from storage you know i was a test pilot on our uh, at twa on our 1011s and 727s as i was a check airman on those as well and so when they came out of maintenance occasionally we'd find brought an aircraft out of storage oh gosh anything from bird's nests to small computers that have little dust particles or stray electrons that don't work right and 
it's just always a nightmare when an aircraft comes out of storage. There's always invariably there's something wrong that that needs some kind of repairing. In fact, I remember a mechanic. It probably doesn't get qualified for the Taylor Award, but he would come out and he would say, "Well, that just needs to be malletized," and, <laughs> and he would come out with a mallet and whack on the computer and say, "Go ahead," and all of a sudden everything worked, which is almost frightening. But sometimes that's these the way, computers that's the way to... John works when he works on an airplane. <laughs> so I'm very familiar with his work. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Sometimes you have to hit people over the head to get them to start thinking. <laughs> right. Why should an airplane be any different? I've taken airplanes out of the out of storage, and sometimes the very ones that I put into storage, and it is amazing how much goes wrong with them just sitting there. Airplanes love to fly, and I'd rather fly an airplane that's been flying every day with a ton of time on it than one that's a hangar queen that sits every and flies one hour every six months or something like that. No question. Strange things happen to them when they don't fly. Yeah, and corrosion that gets into weird places that you can't even see. You just never know. One of the things that John and I have talked about in previous podcasts, especially at the beginning of uh, COVID-19, was the state of the industry, the fact that flying has decreased, well, it had at this uh, prior to this time, had decreased about 95%. It's starting now to slowly ramp back up. But what, do you, from your perspective, since you are sitting in the front end of a commercial airliner, what's your feeling or at least belief of the state of the industry? I mean, are we going to have a very quick rebound based on your experience at your carrier or What's your perspective of all of this? Well, my perspective initially is, and everybody knows this, is that the industry, like many other industries, has been annihilated. I mean, the likes of which we've never seen, mostly because who among us wants to get in a small tube full of people all crowded together, you know, invading each other's privacy with this going on? You know, that's 9-11 was one thing. And okay, we are not afraid to get back into a house that's already been robbed and it was horrible and it really did affect the industry, but it came back. This one, I don't think is going to, first of all, it affected us in a much deeper way because the enemy is still there. It's still lurking among us. And we just don't know the extent of it. The, The knowledge and the unknowns are just too many and too plentiful for us to just, for the traveling public to trust getting back in an airplane. That said, the air in the aircraft, as you know, is recycled every two minutes, and it goes from overhead usually to the side walls and goes through huge, massive HEPA filters that are in all the airliners. I would almost rather be in a crowded airliner than in a crowded restaurant because the air is recycled. In order to keep the cabin pressurized, as you know, you have to pump in massive amounts of air that are all coming from outside, the cleanest air you could find up at altitude, and going and being pumped into the aircraft. And, of course, it's being exhausted out our outflow valve. So, but most people aren't aware of that. But I do think that as time goes on, people are going to want to get back to their lives. And you can, we can see that happening already. The marble always falls back to the bottom of the, the bowl. And I think people, as you can see by watching the news and everything that people are fed up with just being tied up and uh, quarantined in their homes and, and, and life has to continue. And I, I believe traveling is part of that. I don't think it's going to recover to anywhere near the pre-COVID levels that we saw. I mean, we saw a thriving industry with we couldn't buy airplanes fast enough. We couldn't hire pilots fast enough and we couldn't have enough flights and they were all full. 
I don't think that's going to happen for a long time again. And I don't know that we'll even be allowed to fill up airplanes like we used to. In fact, I hope we're not because it, it was like a one of the things. And one of the things that John and I had a discussion not too long ago about was the fact that the airlines, because they've retired so many so many airplanes, their older fleets, if you will. Now the question is, was this? I mean, we always knew that the airlines cycle out airplanes; they bring new airplanes in. But with these premature retirements forced by COVID and the lack of flying, do you think that the airlines will build back up to those numbers, or are they going to reinvent themselves and operate in a more lean, like a lean machine, if you will, type business? I mean, we saw the we saw that the pilot shortage has dried up. There is no pilot shortage anymore. We have not for now. Of pilots. Yeah. So, do you see a rebound there? So it's hard to say. I mean, if the travel comes back, it's hard to even guess what the travel demand is going to be. But if the demand is there, I, I guarantee you they'll keep growing and adding airplanes and seats. But the problem is companies and people are learning that they can once again get Zoom meetings and go to meeting meetings. And maybe the, our bread and butter at the airlines is the business traveler. And they're learning, hey, we can do this without actually traveling to New York or Washington. We can all get on our computers and, and all, it's almost more efficient. And I think we're going to see a lot of that travel go away. But come Christmas, who doesn't want to go visit their families? We're going to see a lot of people want to go start traveling and visiting one another again. So I don't think it's going to come back to the levels that we saw before. And I think it's going to be leaner and meaner. I know that the airlines, especially mine, has learned to or taken advantage of this horrible situation to modernize the fleet. And, you know, instead of drawing down over a period of time uh, so that we can replace aircraft and still meet the demand of travel, we're taking advantage of this time to actually, all right, well, let's do it all in one fell swoop since nobody's flying. John, I know that you're chomping to, to chime in. Yes. Yes, the retirements are. It's interesting to see how many, uh, for example, triple sevens that are that are uh, not going to come back, and all the you know American Airlines is getting rid of the entire seven six seven fleet. Admittedly, they're long in the tooth, but they still had some of them quite a few years left on them. But they're just choosing not to, not to bring them back, and they'll go for more fuel efficient airplanes when the business comes back. And I, I agree with you. I don't think the business travel is going to come back quite the same as it was, but uh, leisure travel will come back, and it, that may force a change in the aircraft configuration as well. We might go back to the days where we have uh, many, many airplanes with no business class in them at all, and they're just uh, essentially tourist airplanes, and maybe have uh, the extra leg room on the front of the airplane and, and uh, maximize the capacities in order to keep the fares affordable. They're never going to be as cheap as they had been, I don't think, but uh, to keep them affordable, so to keep the, the uh, passengers going. There's just too many people have become accustomed to, to traveling that they're not going to give it up. And our families are all spread out. I mean, when, it used to be that everybody never traveled too far from where they were, but uh, how many friends do you know that still live in the same neighborhood they grew up with? I mean, most of my friends have gone off, some of them, you know, a thousand miles away from home. We're going to be a traveling nation again. It's just how we travel and, and for what reasons we travel are going to change. Hey, Brian, did you ever have to take any time off during this period because the flying was so down or have you been continuously flying? I have 
been flying a lot less. Uh, I fly, I bid reserve and I sit, it enables me to have some more time at home. So I fly when they need me and I get paid the same amount, whether I fly or not, which is a beautiful thing. Normally before this happened, I would be flying, you know, 15 to 18 days a month. It would seem now we're on the 20 something of the month. Now at the 25th, I've flown or 24th. I've flown two days this month. So have I am you, flying uh, a lot less. Have you had uh, any issues? I mean, I know that you teach, and so you know your proficiency and and currency and that kind of stuff is one thing. Have you been flying with any pilots who hadn't been flying for an extended period of time, had gone back to training and then back into the cockpit? Did you see any proficiency issues or or anything in the training environment at the airlines that I won't say caused concern, but it, it was noticeable that you know we need to be flying more. Well, absolutely. Yeah, I've seen a lot of that, both in myself and in uh, others, because we're, we're offering you know, pilots are taking voluntary leaves of absence. So they're out for a month or two or three. I'll fly with someone who hasn't flown in that long. And there was a period where I hadn't flown in six weeks. And when I get in the cockpit and I sit down and I look up and I go, wow, look at all these pretty lights and switches. And <laughs> I have to re- re- reacquaint myself with them. But So what a pilot has to do when he hasn't flown or she hasn't flown in a long time is to sit down and we brief one another. And this is the briefing that I give my first officers. Hey, one or both of us hasn't flown in a while. We're not doing this every day like we used to, because when we do it every day, we could close our eyes and the muscle memory will just go through the whole flow and do everything like we, like we're doing it every day. But when we don't, we need to stop, rein it back a, a little bit and say, look, we're just going to operate a little bit slower here. We're going to be a little bit more deliberate and we may even double check a few things. So yes, there's a, a risk and a little bit of hazard involved with the risk of not flying in a long time, but you mitigate that by a acknowledging it. You brief one another if you haven't flown in a while, so we can kind of keep an eye on each other and we slow down, slow down the whole process and, and be very deliberate. And it's amazing how fast it comes back. But what we don't allow ourselves to do is is to rush and get into a flow of things like we did when we were proficiently flying 80 hours a month. With that being said, you're also a general aviation instructor. And, and so one of the big concerns, of course, and I've had this over the last couple of months, a lot of the kids that I was mentoring, young people that I was mentoring have called and said, do I continue my flight training? Because the airline business is dried up, but there are a number of other aspects of aviation that are still going to proliferate. I mean, I, I know that, and again, John and I, we've, had, we've covered these topics in previous podcasts, and that is, you know, is the business aviation charter operation going to escalate because people want more control over their flights and businesses are sure not going to put their employees on a commercial airliner one for the fear of the unknown they don't understand like you just explained the air circulation system they think that if they get on an airplane it's it's a germ factory and that the you know their their boy gets on they're gonna they're gonna have uh, covid when they get off and things like that so from a general aviation standpoint what's your vision there since you are active in that particular aspect of aviation as well Sure. And that's a good question. You know, aviation is such a powerful tool to to be able to fly from one place to another, to be able to get a vantage from the air or to move cargo, whatever the case may be, to law enforcement, to medevac. There are so many aspects of aviation that are just crucial to our infrastructure 
such a valuable tool. It's always going to be there. If 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 a if a pilot loves flying an airplane and he wants to do it for a living, I don't think there's going to be any problem gaining employment doing so in the future. We're going to be, you know, it's going to be a couple of years while the world is holding its collective breath here. And when the industry comes back, I believe it will come back vibrantly and be a very good place for a lot of pilots to be. And there won't be any problem getting a job. My son, for example, I'm teaching him to fly right now. And he asked me the same questions. This, should I even get into this? And I said, yeah, you know, look at this perspective. While you're learning to fly and going to go to college, all those extra pilots aren't going to be hired in the meantime to go ahead of you and be senior to you. It's like a big pause for you. So for those people who are learning how to fly now and going coming up the ranks through general aviation, this is actually working in their favor because we're giving the industry time to catch up without all that hiring going on ahead of them while, while they're doing their flight training. The other aspect of it is that the airlines, the major airlines, if that's your goal, are still so top-heavy on their seniority. We have some very old pilots that are approaching mandatory retirement age in the next five years. So I think the airline where I work, it was supposed to be in the next 10 years. Well, two I said that two years ago. So in the next eight years, we lose about half of our seniority list. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of retirements coming up. And as the travel comes back and the attrition comes off the top, I think there's going to be plenty of work out there in, in the aviation industry. And the numbers are sort of the same in maintenance too. One of the largest U.S. carriers, one of the big three, the average age for their maintenance personnel is 58 years old. So that means in the next nine years, half of their seniority list is going to be eligible to retire or are already half retired. So that's a that's a big loss of not only headcount, but also all that experience. Yeah. Aviation is not going away. So the the companies need to start planning for all of that you know, the transition. I remember Bob Crandall one time uh, got all over me when I was in Washington while I was at the board uh, because he just received a pretty good fine from the FAA. And he attributed the fine to the fact that he was talked into giving his maintainers the buyout, an early buyout. He had given it to a number of the other employee groups and a number of them took it. Naturally, it's the senior people that you want to get rid of because they get the highest pay scale. So he had a whole slug of senior people leave and that they took with them the corporate knowledge and the knowledge that they have on how they complied with the, the uh, FARs. Suddenly, they were not complying with the FARs and he got caught by the FAA and, and uh, paid a pretty good fine. And he blamed that all on, on the offering the uh, early outs for the maintenance personnel. So we're going to be faced with that same shortage for both pilots and mechanics and probably dispatchers as well. And we need to, uh, we, the airlines need to keep that in the front of their mind while they start planning for replacements. Switching gears, Brian, to the general aviation side, when you're teaching or at least even as a DPE, what are some of the things? Because we're fortunate that we have a, a nice audience of, of airline-level listeners, but we have a number of general aviation folks out there. And we, John and I have tried to make it a point in this show to not only educate, but you know, have a call to action if there's issues and, and things like that. You and I both sit on the board of NAFI, and we have discussed some of the, the learning and training issues that, uh, that have 
been in existence. We've tried to break down these barriers. We've tried to come up with new creative ways for training. And right now during this period, when uh, actual training flying was down and, and instructors were sitting on the ground and students were, you know, chomping at the bit to get back in an airplane. What are you seeing in the general aviation world that, and again, concern is not a, a good word because, you know, you, you do have these ebbs and flows and these ups and downs and that kind of stuff. And so what kind of issues are you seeing that we need to address as an industry in the general aviation side, especially as instructors? to turn out that highest quality of pilot? Well, I think, uh, first of all, right now, I, the concern I have is I was taxiing yesterday at the local airport and I saw the entire fleet of airplanes at the flight school where I teach on a beautiful Saturday with perfect weather all sitting there. The airplanes almost looked to be begging to go flying. It was just very sad to see that. So I just want to say that I hope to see that come back. But I'm also seeing... When I see an airplane taxiing out, I see an instructor and a student both wearing a mask. And I, I just think, oh, this has got to be awkward and it's got to be tough to teach like that. I don't know where we're going to go from there. I think everybody's doing that to be prudent. And I'm not going to opine on whether, because I just don't have the knowledge base uh, to decide whether or not that's the right thing to do. It just does dis seem distracting. As far as the DPE thing, I used to be one years ago. I'm not one now, but my name is in the ring and I'm on a short list to become one again, just so you know. But one of the things that, that I'm all in trouble. Yep, absolutely, including myself. <laughs> <laughs> the the concerns right now that, that I'm seeing is complacency. I just don't want to see someone who has not flown in a while because we we may be spreading out our lessons longer. We may be spreading out our joy flights longer apart, and I don't want to see somebody getting in an airplane like like you and I get in a car. We get in. I don't check the oil before I get in a car. I don't check open the fuel cap. I, I just get in and go, trusting that everything will work. And I know there are a lot of pilots that just become complacent after a while. You know, every time I pre-flight my airplane, it's fine. Why should I keep doing so? And I'm seeing some of this and I'm just seeing laziness. And I really would like to see instructors encourage very thorough pre-flighting, not to regard getting in an airplane like you get in a car. I mean, I see some pilots that get in, they crank up the radio, and I just, I've tried it. I've tried listening to music when I fly. I just can't do it because I just feel like I need to be listening attentive to the airplane, to every sound it's making. I just need to be in tune with it. I need to constantly be focusing on where am I going to go if my engine quits now? What am I going to do if this happens? And I'm always asking what if. And I think pilots should have a tiny bit of fear when they fly. And I don't want to say they should be afraid to fly, but they need to be just enough apprehensive, just enough to be looking for ways to mitigate all the little things that can go wrong and be ready for them. Because I'm just seeing so many pilots being complacent and just thinking they get in, turn the key and go and, and point the airplane to drive. That's not aviating, it's driving. And, and that's one of the things that I'd like to watch everybody be very careful about one of the things that just bothers me and it still is happening in up until this period of time but i don't i still don't understand to this day how a pilot can take off in an airplane venture off on a cross country not having done proper pre-flight planning and run out of gas and it's that still continues to be a problem to this day, no matter how many articles have been written, how many people like you and me preach the message. John's gone out there and given speeches on behalf of the NTSB about issues. 
I mean, come on, really? You're still running out of gas. I know. We just had one out here locally that it, it, it flew across country, came back, did some touch and goes, stopped and had lunch, and then took off to fly a very short flight to his home airport. But he had way too much air in the fuel tanks. And shortly after takeoff, he lost an engine. And that's one of the things that I teach in my uh, impossible, or I should say possible turn seminar is that the first thing you need to do is avoid having the engine failure because most of them are caused by the pilot. Sometimes you get a mechanical failure that there's just, you know, it's just your time. It's unlucky and it happens. But there are so many things, either fuel mismanagement, the fuel system, the fuel valve, the shutoff valve, the, the fuel in the tanks or the fuel cap is off. There's so many things that can cause an engine to fail as, as a result of fuel starvation that the pilot has control over, and yet they just don't choose to do it. Sometimes I think it would be better if we just took the fuel gauges out of the airplane. Yes, and I agree. <laughs> because they serve absolutely no purpose. The fuel gauge on all of my students, they wear on their wrist and their finger. So if they stick their finger in the tank and they can feel fuel, they know they've got X amount of gallons. And if they run that engine at full power, they know it's going to run X amount of hours. So they note the takeoff time and the watch is going to tell them how much fuel they have. And then every time they stop, they top it off again. I have people laugh at me for having students fill up after a short flight or let's say an airplane just came in. The instructor will say, we just did an hour in the pattern and it was full, so you should be fine. I shame them for saying that in front of my students. I'm like, we are going to leave with full tanks. Weight and balance permitting, if you can leave with full tanks, you should. There's no reason not to because it's known. It's a given quantity of fuel. The gauges mean nothing. What a previous instructor tells me means nothing. I don't know. And I've had this happen. I've had one engine failure in a light aircraft, and it was as a result of fuel starvation. It was because of a fuel line came off the engine. Plenty of fuel on board. But if you have a fuel line that's leaking fuel while you're flying and you're lucky enough not to have a fire, then you don't know how much it's burning in that one hour, how much is burning or losing, and so on and so forth. So yeah. maximize it. You know, nothing as worthless as the air in the tanks or the runway behind you. And I don't get it either, but I really would like to see a, a, a massive campaign to teach pilots to take that more seriously. Yeah, the, the numbers have been pretty consistent for over the last 25 years, and that is about one-third of the accidents that we have fuel starvation as a cause. Well, how cool could it be if we could just knock out one-third of the accidents that we have by telling pilots to just always top off and always check their fuel and never trust their gauges? Yeah, but you know what? In the GA community, so many pilots are, are squeezing every penny that they can to get their flight time, and their fuel is... 20 cents a, a gallon cheaper in their home airport, then we got to get back home. We got to nurse it over there to get there instead of taking an extra 10 or 20 gallons. Yeah, that's sad. I'll pay for it. It's, it's, you have to ask yourself after the accident, would I have paid that extra 20 cents a gallon? The thing that always just, I, I shake my head at it is we've got guys at the airport where my office is and I fly out of that will fly 15, 20 minutes away because the gas is three cents a gallon cheaper. <laughs> Dude, you just yeah. burned up all that savings commuting <laughs> to it and from it. <laughs> you know, so yeah. why I'm do it? Too, I'm too lazy to do that, unless I'm going there anyway. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it is crazy. One of the other things that I've seen, I know John has seen because uh, we've had these discussions, um, is the fact that in the environment, the training environment, 
one of the the concerns with general aviation pilots, and I'm seeing it, and I know you are, in uh, in your other work as an expert in the cases we get involved with, are these pilots who do have quote the requisite qualifications, i.e., an instrument rating. They go venture off into some lousy weather, not necessarily you know level five type weather, but they do venture off into IMC, and they can't handle simple situations that occur that they were trained to handle, whether it be a loss of an instrument or or something like that, or just being able to control the airplane if the autopilot fails. It is very concerning to me because we're seeing a lot of those, at least I am seeing a lot of those types of accidents. I don't know, you know if you've been seeing it recently, but I sure have. Oh, absolutely. I've seen several and I've worked on several. And I think one thing that really disturbs me, and I say this to all my instrument students, that it is possible to obtain your instrument rating without ever having flown in the cloud and then to go years without ever flying in a cloud perfectly legally, you know, using hood work and whatever. Putting the hood on and flying in a cloud are so diametrically polarized things <laughs> that it almost behooves us to not allow someone to get an instrument rating without having been in the clouds. You can't cheat. And the human brain acts much differently in the cloud than it does when it puts a hood on, knowing that you can just flip the hood off and see perfectly out the window and fix everything. And the, yeah. the unusual attitude recovery, same thing. I think that all instrument students should be required to fly in the clouds in IMC. And if an instrument pilot can't go out and get that kind of experience current to do it in a simulator because you just, you just can't cheat and yeah. it, it's so different, but I'm seeing a very big lack of skills. And if I haven't been up in IMC in a single, I won't do it. It's much, much difficult to fly single pilot IFR in a light aircraft than it is to be in an airliner flying a cat three approach down to minimums, which I do all the time. I routinely fly ILS approaches in all kinds of bad weather down to an ungodly low altitude before I ever see anything. If anything, sometimes we don't have to see anything to touch down. And then the nose starts coming down to the runway and I start seeing centerline lights going underneath my nose wheel. I do things like that, yet I am still afraid to go get a one in a 172 and fly an approach down to minimums. I just wouldn't do that. Yeah, my feeling exactly. I do the same thing. I, I always have someone with me who's a lot more proficient, even though we <laughs> I'm current. I'm not as proficient. So I, I do not have enough of an ego to, to think that I can do this, just, you know, kick the tires, light the fire and rock and roll. Yeah, um, a little humility goes a long way. Absolutely. Brian, I'd like to raise one issue with you while we still have a few minutes left. And that is, when I learned to fly, on virtually every flight with an instructor, I had to do spins and stalls. And now we don't teach that in our basic training. Do you agree with me that that's a negative, that we should still be doing it? Or do you think that uh, teaching it the way we do in a, out of a textbook on the ground is adequate? I think that the statistics would prove that the way we were doing it before by teaching the spins was more dangerous because of the way we were doing it. My opinion is that we should be teaching spins. Everybody needs to go out and see one and physically recover from one. 
but the instructors really need some advanced training on it from people who really know what they're doing. I think every instructor should get that. And then the instructors need to pass that down to the students. That's my opinion. I don't think you can learn to recover from a spin. Yeah, that was been my feeling for a long time. All right, Greg, we're running close to the end of our time limit. So do you have any additional questions or comments? Well, Brian and I could definitely go on for hours. There's a, there's a lot of things that we could talk about and I think would be beneficial to the audience. So we're going to definitely have Brian back. I want to really get more into general aviation, flying and training and that kind of stuff, because while we can talk airline stuff all day long, a lot of people can't relate to it. But uh, the, the majority of the pilots out there that uh, listen to us who are in the general aviation ranks can definitely benefit from uh, from your experience, Brian. And I'd, and then one of these days, um, we got to get your dad on there. I, I want to throw softballs between you two and just hear you banter <laughs> back and forth. So <laughs> that would be a lot of fun. Entertainment for me. It would be. That would be a lot of fun. You know, like straight in approaches at non-towered airports. Go. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. Can I I offer one tip and trick for uh, GA pilots? Absolutely. I teach my students. One thing I teach my students to do, and I've been doing forever, and every examiner that's given a check ride to one of my students just loves it, is when they finish the pre-flight, First of all, do one big walk around again. Just walk around the whole airplane and make sure you didn't like miss a wing or something like that. Count, you know, the two wings, three wheels, all so on and so forth. But then pull the aircraft a few feet forward out of the parking spot. And that way you can actually look at the, uh, the tread all the way around the tires. And I tell my students, we're doing that to look at the tread all the way around the tires, all three wheels as you pull it out of the parking spot. It has nothing to do with really looking at the tread so much as it does to prevent them from ever attempting to taxi out with a tie down still attached to the aircraft. Because <laughs> the other day I saw someone attempt to do that again. And none of my students do because they always pull the aircraft a few feet out before they get in. That's great. One of the tricks that <laughs> one of my instructors taught me is that whenever you do your mag checks, yeah. after you finish and you run your engine, taxi a few feet forward you know, 10 or 15 feet, and then cock the airplane 45 degrees and look back to see if there's any fluid spilled in the ground. Oh, that's a good one. I never heard of that one. And now I'm going to file that one into my collection. Yeah, apparently he had a problem. That The instructor once had a problem and had a, a pretty good oil leak. That's pretty good. I always make my students add power for the run-up while looking out the window. I make them guess to see if they can hit 17 or 1800 RPM and then look down and see how close they came. It has nothing to do with the skill of being able to obtain 17 or 1800 RPM without looking. As much as it does, it has them looking out the window when they're adding all that much power so they know they don't start rolling. You know what I used to teach my mechanics? And it holds true for everybody in aviation, that we need to use all of our senses. It's not only what you see, it's what you hear, it's what you feel, it's what you taste. All of your senses you have to use because there's always information floating around the airplane that you need to pay attention to. That's right. If it tastes like Skydrawl, it probably is. Yep. (laughs) Yep. Well, this has been a a great conversation, Brian. I really appreciate you taking the time to to be on the show and talk with me and John, and we're definitely going to have you back. I just think that you have a lot to offer to the industry. We just touched on uh, just fragments of it. So we'll we'll be looking forward to future shows with you for sure. Glad to be here. I really appreciate you inviting me on. 
Good. Well, we know that uh, you'll be flying us around and uh, keeping us safe, especially since we know that it would be very embarrassing after this discussion if you <laughs> did something to ding an airplane because you know who would be the first one all over it. So, <laughs> yes, I do. Yes, I do. Mum's a word. We would never say anything. Right. <laughs> That's right. Well, John, I think that was a, a great show with Brian. It's very informative, and, and he had a bit of a call to action, if you will. We were talking about flight safety and, of course, general aviation training and that kind of thing. So I'm looking forward to having him back on. I know that it's been a long time since you and I have been together in the studio. We're looking forward to hopefully getting together soon so that we can not only record in person and improve the quality of, uh, of at least our non-visual show, but I'm also looking forward to doing our uh, our video show as well. I can't wait for that to happen. So with all of that being said, I hope that uh, you, the listeners, got something out of this particular show. John and I always try to bring some points to the show so that you can have a takeaway, learn from it. And and Brian was a, a great teacher in, in providing some uh, some points. You can always contact us through our uh, website at flightsafetydetectives.com. You can definitely contact John and I through the email that we have. It's flightsafetydetectives with an S at gmail.com. We encourage you to write. Tell us what's good, what's bad, what you liked about the show, what you didn't like about the show. Hopefully you get a lot of benefit out of uh, the guests that we have. And I know that some of these shows do run a little long. John and I are now trying to temper that a little bit. So we're going to be talking fast, getting a lot of information because that's the purpose of the show is to give you as much benefit from the folks that we have on besides myself and John. So with that, my friend, I look forward to seeing you hopefully soon in person rather than through a computer screen. So, John, with that, I will let you sign us off. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and fly safe. To listen to more episodes of the show, go to FlightSafetyDetectives.com or the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association at PAMA.org and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Catch us next time when John Golia and Greg Fife talk about all things aviation. Thanks for listening.